The Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K-12 curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. Check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. The Remedial History Project is funded through grants and by listeners like you. Please head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial History Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. In particular, funds from patrons added from here on out will help us launch a crash course YouTube channel on women's history. We will be producing short 10-minute videos that educators can play in their classes telling women's history from era to era for both U.S. and world history. Let's make history together. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? This week, we are going to be talking with soon-to-be Dr. Connie Marquez about the only two empresses of China who both came to power after being concubines and led China through some interesting periods of time. So I can't wait to get into it. Hello and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. On this episode, we are going to be asking two questions. How does Confucianism impact the legacy of Chinese empresses? And how did female sexuality lead to the rise and fall of these empresses? So we're going to be talking about two empresses that are about a thousand years apart in time, and yet they are the only two empresses of China. And we are so excited because we have soon-to-be Dr. Connie Marquez on the podcast this week, and she has been on our podcast before. She is a historian of Latin American history. She is from Mexico herself, but teaches here in the U.S., And um, but she has also taught history in China, which is a really interesting experience. So I'm wondering if Connie can introduce herself. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening. It is my pleasure to be here again with Kelsey in this wonderful pro- project, Remedial History. And today we're going to be talking about two of the main female figures in the long history of China, which spans for more than 5,000 years. This podcast is sponsored by our patrons. Patrons get access to behind the scenes, regular RHP gear, bonus episodes, insights into our research, lesson plans before everybody else, and more. Brooke, read off these awesome people. Thank you to Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, and Katya. Woohoo! Do you know what is so awesome about this particular group of people? No, what? Very few of them are actually educators. These are badass people who care so much about equitable and inclusive education that they are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. You too can become a patron of the Remedial History Project by heading over to www.patreon.com and becoming a sponsor of the Remedial History Project for just $5 a month. That's it. That's one latte. I mean, it's it's one of something, but it's cheap. And you get all that stuff? All that stuff. You too can give up one latte for thousands of children and women. 
You could also buy condoms for more than that. <laughs> <laughs> you could produce. You could produce. You could reduce reproduction <laughs> for less than that. Uh. Brooke, most importantly, instead of lamenting that women's history isn't being taught in high school or that they didn't know these women, these people are putting their money where their mouth is and they are getting it into the curriculum by funding us. It's awesome. And they believe women's stories are important. Yes. Thank you. Duh. Thanks, patrons. We love you. We do love you. Kelsey, did you know that the Chinese culture... The Chinese civilization is the longest in the planet. Oh my gosh, is it really? Yes, is the only civilization, the only country. Well, back then it, it wasn't a country, it was an empire. But uh, it's the only one that has lasted more than 5,000 years. The That's Egyptians unreal. lasted, the, the Mayas lasted. Uh, but in the Romans, the Greeks, but nobody has been permanently uh, living in that land for that long as a culture, 5,000 years. On this episode, we're going to be talking about two empresses of China. And the first one is this empress, Empress Wu. And uh, before we get into it with Connie here, I want to tell you a little bit about my own experience. So I have traveled to China twice. Um, first, as an undergrad, I was studying Asian politics. I was a political science major. And um, there I got to tour around Beijing. And then I actually took a train out of China and into Mongolia, um, where I studied for for uh, over seven weeks in Mongolia and then came back to China and then headed home. Um, that experience was really interesting. And what made it really special to me was seeing China in a period before the Olympics were hosted there and a lot of Western tourists were coming over. Um, it was very muggy and there's a lot. It was just a very dirty city. And to see it cleaned up in my second visit in 2018 um, was just really interesting. Uh, the city had transformed over that over that time. Um, the first time I was a college student and it was a very different outlook. And the second time I traveled, I was with um, students. I was actually leading students. Uh, on an EF tour, and we stopped in three different Chinese cities, which was really neat. I stayed in Beijing, Xi'an, and Shanghai, and uh, the city had transformed. It was it was really cool. I felt much more comfortable being there, um, and my love for China really grew in in both of those experiences. The second time I was there, though, in the city of Xi'an, I got to go on a probably very touristy experience, which was I went to see an opera. And this opera was about Empress Wu. And it was the first time I had really been opened to the women's history of China. I hadn't really thought about it before that experience. And, um, I was exposed now to an empress, and I didn't know how many Chinese empresses there were, um, but I learned pretty quickly that she was the one and only <laughs> um, for a long time, and that her legacy was basically that you shouldn't have a Chinese empress. So I'm really excited to have Connie here today to talk to everybody about Empress Wu. And then we're also going to get into the Dowager Empress from much later in the late 1800s. So let's start with Empress Wu. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Well, the, the two empresses we're talking about, they are 
separated more than a thousand years. Imagine more than a thousand years, and yet they're here in our episode. <laughs> yes, Empress Hu or Wu was uh, ruled in, uh, she ruled actually for 22 years, but her, her power became since she arrived to the palace. She, her life was a very interesting life, but also dramatic life. And the way she got to the power is based mostly in her beauty. Mm-hmm. Meaning she was selected back then the most beautiful or the youngest girls were uh, called mandatory by the state officials to be in meetings or to be selected for, for the emperors as concubines. It was the equivalent of winning Miss World or, you know, the, the contest of beauty. She was called and selected to one of these uh, tests that the emperor sent the officials to, to do. She was of an upper class, so it wasn't like they were doing beauty tests to everyone like Payson. They still had a very strong um, caste, if you will, or social class society in which you had to be already have to be born in certain social class to be selected. So she was uh, selected and she was named one of the concubines of the emperor. And she was the wife of two emperors, the mother of two more emperors, and just to crown all these triumphs, because for all the women uh, besides Hu or Wu, that was enough, right? To be the wife of an emperor. But she wasn't not only the wife of one emperor, she was the wife of two emperors. And then she mothered two more emperors. But that was not enough for her, and she was an emperor an empress herself. That's amazing. She lived on our time in the first years of our time. Uh, she lived from 624 to 705 AD. And she was a ruler in 683. Uh, so she it was in her in in her last years, right? But uh, she was, in those years, Confucianism was the state religion. And Confucianism became the, the way uh, Chinese society ruled. And she was uh, raised in this religion. But she knew that in this religion, uh, the way the things were ordered by the precepts of this religion was that you had to obey your parents, you had to obey your husband. That was not okay with with Wu because she also in in her time, women were having power as a mothers. 
because they they use this tool of respect for the elders of this ancient religion uh, that uh, order the, the people to obey their elders. And that also included, to some extent, the mother. So that's why she was able to rule over her, her sons as well. But as a way to respect this religion, to respect the, uh, the elders, she also knew the way to break with that. And the way to break with Confucianism for who was to embrace Buddhism in her reign, in her, let, let's say, also when she was the, the woman behind the power, she was not empresses per se, but she was the one who ruled. And the, the um, emperor who was her second husband, the son of her first husband, ruled with always taking um, her opinion in consideration. So, so she was there. And that she knew, she identified that one of the main blocks or walls to stop her, her power was also the Confucianism as an ideology, but also for the for the monks, for the uh, ministers who follow this philosophy. This philosophy didn't fit well with her idea of uh, being free to rule, and particularly that the woman has a secondary uh, role always beyond a man. So she saw this as a way to be uh, free in, in by embracing uh, Buddhism. Actually, she opened and she created many Buddhism uh, shrines. And she also, her tomb is a Buddhist shrine. So meaning the, 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 uh, the figure that she is, is of Buddhism inspiration. She's not exactly looked at well in history. Can you tell me a little bit about the legacy of her rule? I consulted the book of Jonathan Clements that uh, he, uh, the title is Who? The Chinese Empress Who Scheme Seduced and Murdered Her Way to Become a Living God. This book was published in 2014. And Jonathan Clements let us know that Empress Hu was one of the main, it's been one of the main figures in the only empress. That's enough to make it to the history books, right? But she, because of that, uh, she has been the subject of controversial uh, and also the sources are very contradictory. She also had her own writers, a nephew, two nephews, uh, wrote her biography that she was able to control when she was alive. But then when she died, those who were silenced by her power start to speak up. So her figure is so distant in time. We're talking about her death in 
705 AD, the Roman Empire, contemporary, right, of the Roman Empire, that this uh, figure is just lost in the shadows of what's real, what's not real. And with the time, with the years, and confronting, even confronting the letters, it's so difficult because it's so lost in time. And since she was ruling, she had the factors or detractors, and she had people who supported. So she was a two-side figure, those who praised her and those who made her virtues, such as a strong woman and smart women, to, to say that she was evil. And that seemed to be, Kelsey, sadly, the constant in, in female history. Because female history is surrounded by these stereotypes of, of a bad woman who use her sexuality, who use the power of her body just to tame the man. You know, when a woman is not beyond the man, and like in the case of Wu, she was in front and she became an empress, always the sources said, Oh, she was a bad woman. She was, uh, she manipulated men. That is part, partially because of the patriarchal way of writing history where women cannot have their own agency. In the case of Wu, we don't know. It's so far away. The sources are contradictory to praise or to attack. Her nephew described her as a treasure's fox. She was blamed to strangle her own daughter to get rid of, of the other wives of the emperor. And after the death of her newborn girl, the, the emperor took pity on her, perhaps, or he already loved her, but he couldn't get rid of wife number one and wife number two. So with these, they were blamed. And this crime was made into an advantage and opened the path to Wu. So the idea of uh, blaming her own, uh, of uh, blaming Wu to strangle her own daughter also appears in the chronicles right after her death. All these gossips, all these true or not true were made into sources. And sexual allegations of how she was a tiger in, in, in the bed that she conquered and she made the two emperors, the father and later the son, to eat out of her hand became part of the, of the way people talked on her. But when she died, all these enemies uh, were allowed because she was um, replaced by a son who never wanted her. Because that's another part of the Who of Wu story, Kelsey. According to Jonathan Clements and the other sources that I consulted, because she was much into power, she wasn't liked by her own family. Her own family 
despise her, meaning her sons. They wouldn't say anything when she was alive, but actually she was forced to to give up the the power of as an empress months before she died. She was forced to resign months before her death. And that was made by her own son. So um, it is believed that the the archaeologists had found uh, evidences of violent deaths on on her family, and this is not a myth only. You know that's important to say. Chinese historians and archaeologists are still digging, are still trying to create a more realistic portrait of Wu. But in the case of Wu, it is known that she had wars. I mean, she she sponsored wars and it was a very violent period. And that is perhaps why Wu is also, besides the sexual and, and the characteristics of Wu as a lion, as a, as a terrible woman, it's also the characteristics of her as a terrible ruler. The only way we know for sure, or at least it can get us clear of the, her legacy, is that the, the children who survived her left her memorial blank. She sent uh, away her, the, the hair, the, the son, Prince Xian, to be banished to a distant province and later forced to commit suicide. And this was said when she was alive. So her memorial that should be full of decoration is just blank. And that is believed that but the other people, other people say that the memorial is not is blank because she was so great that no words can, could express how great she was. So right now in talk of, talking about Wu, we cannot separate fiction from reality because it's not only far away in time, but also in the time she was alive, the biographies were also filled with mythology. We're talking about the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages and the end of the Roman Empire in Western history. The only things for sure that the both bio, uh, the biographies coincide on Wu is that she was a smart. By the age of uh, 30, she had seized, seized the reins of power. She was already there as a, as a wife of the second emperor. And she used her second husband incapacitation through illness to rule the empire under his name. And when she entered the prime of her life, she was versed in, of course, in Chinese language, but also there was the classic Chinese language that only the elite and the ministers could speak. And she could do anything she wanted because she married the son of her first husband, who was incapable to rule or According to the biographies, she made him behave like that so she could be the win on the uh, the one on the power. So 
that's so so interesting but also it's so impossible to separate fiction from reality especially in so far away time so a thousand years over a thousand years later china has a second empress can you tell us a little bit about her Sishi, I used uh, for for this episode. I used the book. I consulted the book of Zhong Shang, and her book is called "The Concubine Who Launched Modern China: Empress Dowager Sishi." And by the name of Dowager, meaning widow, we know that she inherited the power from her husband, but. She is not considered an empress. She is considered, and she has passed to the history as a regent. There's a big difference between being an empress and being a regent. The empress is considered to be descendant from God, while a regent is a political but still very powerful position. Yes, a regent. You get to be a regent in, in, in ancient, I mean, in, in before the Chinese Revolution, China, a regent was a ruler, but it wasn't an emperor because the emperor had um, descendant from God, right? It, it, it was a very different. It was a, a God-given position, if you will, to be an emperor while being a re- regent was a political position, a very powerful one. So uh, Empress Dower Zizi, or Zuzi, Zuzi, <laughs> pardon my Chinese, lived uh, from 1835 to 1908, the, the half of the 18th century and the first decade of the 20th century. So, of course, the sources are more close to our time and more books about her uh, rather than mythological accounts, like in the case of Empress Wu. So she was a regent. That's a big difference, uh, being a a regent and being an empress, right? And she ruled behind an emperor. She ruled behind her husband, who was declared Uncapable uh, to rule. And then she ruled, she named a grandson an emperor. And the grandson was a little one. I think he was like five or six years old. So she was the one over, over the power. So, first, an uncapable husband to rule, an emperor, and then a uh, a grand a son who was as well incapable to rule, and then a nephew that uh, she was able to get rid of him by detecting a coup that was uh, a plot against her that was prepared by her her uh, nephew, and she was able to order his death, and then. There was a series of events that allow her, or maybe smart uh, way to do politics, very smart and successful, that made her being 
uh, a region for most of her life. She became a, a royal concubine when she was 16 years old in 1851, along with her sister. And she was so beautiful that she was uh, selected on the spot out of 60 candidates. But she was from Manchuria, a, a faraway region from Beijing. And her family was not the, the most uh, the highest family in the in the nobility echelon. So she was placed in a very low rank as a concubine. Now, maybe it's time, Kelsey, to talk about the concubines. For in China, for for a man to to a powerful man, and that's maybe also true in many societies in Asia. Muslims, for example, right, who have different wives, uh, especially in the past, right? It is if you are an important man, you should have more than wife, more than one wife, and several or hundreds concubines. It is believed that the the power, the power and the the sexual uh, power, and with that the force of a ruler, it's also in having the best sex in in being a man by having many women available for him so the 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 role of a concubine is also to improve the emperor's health can you believe it it was considered mandatory for the emperor's health to have multiple concubines so to be a concubine is Something that is hard or difficult for us in the West to think about, and maybe today in China as well. But in the past, it was to have power was also to have women. And it was expected from an emperor to have women, to have hundreds. And the women were also uh, important for the families because they were able to be traded by important positions. If a daughter had a married, an advantaged marriage, the families will not only rise socially speaking, but economically speaking. Right now we think that uh, in Chinese culture, women are, you know, are not well regarded because you know, back even until in, in the early, I think it began in 1985 and it lasted more than 10 years where Chinese were forced to have only one children, right, by the government. So at that time, many families killed or abandoned girls just to, to have one son because it was believed that the son will look after the family much better than than a girl that will lose the, the last name because of being married. But in these times of the emperors, the women had a very special role in the family because they could get married with advantaged marriages and they will be given a higher uh, status to the families. Uh, that's important to, to consider, right? The, the, the asset that a woman having a woman or having a 
a marriable woman for a family was. They could get married and increase. And that was the case of, of Sushi. She was uh, able to make it into a concubine. And that was uh, an achievement itself. It, she was selected out of hundreds and then out of dozens of girls. And once inside the palace, she got so much educated that she was able to, to uh, make, uh, to, to increase her power even more because she was educated inside the palace. She spoke Manchurian and she spoke Chinese and she learned classic Chinese literature. And it is known that she was very smart in languages and classical writing, something that other men couldn't do. And she access to power by having a male hair. She, she gave birth to the future emperor. She moved up while the other concubines, the other wives, couldn't move up as she was able to do. So it's a combination, Kelsey, of different things. First, being selected for her beauty and smartness as a concubine, then moving her way up from the lower ranks of concubines to the top in, in decades. It, it didn't come from one year to another. But then mother, the, uh, the emperor, and having a husband who was incapable to rule or at least that's what the chronicle said that that she was able to be a regent because her husband wasn't good enough in the power. So in listening here Connie, it seems like sexuality is a very key component to her rise to power. It is we have to understand Kelsey that that's the dynamic. We can be against that especially today in feminist theory and and with our uh, 21st century view, we can say, oh, how can we objectivize women? How can we talk about women just as a sexual object? Well, these two women, Empress Wu and Empress Sishi, were much more than that. Yes, they used the, the gift of be- giving birth to the, the emperors, right? But at the same time, they were smart enough to rule using those those weapons, if you will, those assets. So that was the way. There was no way that the emperor could even look at a woman if it wasn't a concubine or if it wasn't within his own court. The emperor wouldn't go to the provinces wouldn't go to meet peasants. It was a highly stratified society. So they could only see what the, what the people surrounded the emperor uh, presented to the emperor. So she was, the both women lived in a society, lived, uh, belonged to a social class that make them in contact with, the, with those officials who were in charge of selected the concubines. And once inside the palace, 
that was a, it was a triumph by itself. Remember the, the palace it was called, is today known as the Forbidden City. Why Forbidden City? Only officials and, and uh, very few people from the vast Chinese empire could even get close to the doors, could even make it to Beijing to start with. People were not traveling. People will live and die in their own provinces, in their own towns. They will never get to meet the emperor, not even see a painting of the emperor. So people couldn't get into the Forbidden City. Back in the time of Empress Wu and also Empress Sushi at the beginning of the 20th century, right? So imagine the, the chances. And once they were selected as concubines, once inside the walls of the Forbidden City, they had to show uh, special assets that will make the emperor take a look on her uh, and then select them among it's believed that some emperors had, had hundreds of concubines. So just to be selected and then to make your way up, that was a big triumph. That shows determination, smartness, because beauty, you know, Kelsey, beauty is not enough. You need to back a beautiful face with brain. And we know that for Miss World and all these contests, they not only look, well, so they say, right? <laughs> they also want to know how you're going to rule, how you're going to present yourself as a, as a beautiful woman. And this, perhaps one of the conclusions we can get from these two uh, great female figures in Chinese history is that beauty and, and brain are the key combination. Because these two women were beautiful by the chronicles and the standards of their time. They say they were mesmerizingly beautiful. Sushi, we have portraits of her because by the time she, she was born in, uh, she was born in the midst of the 1800s. And then she was in power in the, in the 1870s, 1880s. There was photographs of her. Of course, these photographs, you know, she had to use the best makeup and amazingly outfits as an empress, well, as a regent. <laughs> but uh, she was beautiful, but she was smart and not only versed in languages or in writing or in literature. She was smart in political strategies. Mm. They knew how to conquer, how to make alliances and how to uh, get rid of their enemies. That's when I'm talking about being smart. So I'm trying to figure out where to place these two women in my history classes. Empress Wu, I feel like, is a really interesting conversation around Confucianism. Whereas I feel like this later empress, I I'm struggling because... In my class, this is the same time as we're learning about the Boxer Rebellion in U.S. history and the open door policy. In world history, we might be putting this in the context of the Opium Wars and kind of the decline of China. And so I guess I'm, I'm interested, where can you, can you help me place this, the, this empress in, in context? And, um, 
do you feel like it is her or is it just the time frame that she is in that creates this de- decline for China? Is, is this an inevitable decline or did she contribute to that by, by failure of leadership? Well, first, let's separate Wu from Cixi. Uh, not only more than 1,000 years apart, but in the case of Wu, of Pre- Empress Wu, she, uh, her empire increased with having contact with foreigner powers. It is known that she had good diplomatic and good economical uh, connections with foreigner powers. Actually, in her tomb, you have these figures of of, uh, people from Persia, from uh, Middle East, right? And also even uh, Jewish and Indian and Tibetan. So she had contact with Persian princes, Jewish Jewish merchants, Indian and Tibetan missionaries. So she had... uh, a very different position in terms of foreigner relations in her in her time. But as you mentioned, going back to the 19th century and the 20th century, indeed, see she in the beginning, she was completely against any uh, foreigner uh, connections. And especially she got to face the opium war particularly the Second Opium War, which was from 1856 to 1860. She was key in the stabilization of China after the Second Opium War. And the way to stabilize China, her uh, her strategy was to oppose, to, to strongly oppose any foreign investment and trading, and refusing any modernization with little tolerance or no tolerance to Christians and other religions. Her her husband had already allowed some missionaries to to settle in, in Beijing and create Christian churches. Well, Zixi refused that, and with the after the opium war she had the the tools if you will to get rid of any foreigner investment and get rid of any influence to blame men and with reason to be honest with reason of the terrible effects of the opium war but then she also had one of the bloodiest uh legacies of Zixi is the Taiping Rebellion, Kelsey. The Taiping Rebellion was a, was a, a national rebellion that wanted to get rid of the emperor's rule. And this rebellion was from 1850 to 1864. And it's believed that more than 30 million of Chinese died in the Taiping Rebellion that was uh, order, I mean, not order, but the uh, the ending this rebellion was ordered by Zixi, and this rebellion was against the emperor, was against to get rid of the ruling uh, of the emperors, and she, she punished 
so violently, she ordered so bloody punishment that for these rebels against her rule, that uh, it's believed that more than 30 Chinese died. And as you mentioned, she supported the Boxers' Rebellion. This rebellion was against foreigners trading in China and living in China. The Boxers wanted to get rid, after the Opium War, wanted to get rid completely of any foreigner in China and also any trade. They wanted to lock, completely lock and sealed Chinese, uh, China at any cost. And it is known that she supported uh, this rebellion, not openly, perhaps, but she did, uh, she allowed them to operate. And it is also known that she disliked foreigners, particularly Westerners, particularly whites. And that make that some historians consider Sishi xenophobic with xenophobic tendencies because she despised foreigners. But, and this is the, the smartness, if you will, or to be utilitarian or to use the opportunities just to on her own way. When she know, when she learned that Westerners were there to stay, particularly in Hong Kong and particularly in the coast, because the trading was important for Chinese economy. And by locking up Chinese economy, the uh, the emperor, uh, the the state in that in that time became completely bankrupt. So that made Sishi accept foreigners trade after the bankruptcy of their own co- of her own country. So uh, she was. Um, she was able to change sites just to survive, just to survive. And she was forced by the circumstances. And also inside uh, her ruling, uh, inside the core of the emperor uh, or her as a regent, they knew that it was, there was no way to resist Westerners in China especially trading, and especially when China was bankrupt on her administration. And famine attacked many provinces. So people was dying, famine was rampant, and there was bankruptcy in administration, also for their own circumstances of corruption, of uh, taxes and all these uh, made also and along with having three wars, actually four, the first opium war, then the second opium war, uh, and then the Taiping Rebellion, which was a national rebellion from 1850 to 1864, a vast majority of the Chinese population was wanted to get rid of the emperor. And they were violently repressed so bankrupt with more than 30 million dead on her shoulders because she ordered this violent massacre repression of the Taiping Rebellion. And then the Opium War effects, the trade, the only way out 
for the bankrupt in her administration and famine was to trade with Westerners. So she started opening it up. And then when she died, the next emperor, Puji, is the one who lost the power completely. And that was the arrival of the communist. So I dare to say, Kelsey, that without this uh, difficult moment of bankruptcy and, and uh, famine and sufferance for Chinese people under sushi uh, when she was uh, the, the regent under sushi and then Puji who inherited or became emperor when he was a little child without this failure of the Chinese emperor system, it wouldn't be possible the Chinese revolution. People was tired of these thousand years of, of uh, ruling and that became with the Westerners and with the change of times uh, difficult to, 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 to be on, right? So Sushi sadly now has this um this myth of sushi as the one who gave the last although the, she wasn't the last emperor but she created this big problem that ended up being the death and the complete failure of the emperor's system in China do you think that's because of her leadership or do you think that she just happened to be the leader in that time and it was inevitable I think it was both. It was both. She, I was saying uh, that she was very smart, very well, well versed in culture and in political science, in political strategies. She got to power. She got to be the longest regent uh, in, in China. Right. But she got to be there because she was smart and she used the system. Right. She did not embrace another religion like Wu did with Buddhism. She continued the Confucianism religion uh, within the rules. She, she played the game within the rules. But by playing the games within the rules, she was unable or she refused to see that there had to be important changes. And I'm not only talking about accepting Westerners and trading. No, it's much more than that. It's about changing. For example, she, she strongly opposed the creation of a Chinese university with Western professors. She refused that. She refused Chinese to be, learn, to be learning English, for example, when England was the main partner or was uh, one of the main uh, we, we have to understand that in those years, the UK, uh, and we're talking about Victorian era, she was contemporary of Victorian queen in England, Sushi. Uh, England was in the, in the top of their power as a colonial power, right? Especially in Asia, Asia and Africa as well. But it's not only to accept them and to trade, it's also to make important changes from the root, from, from the laws, the taxes, 
the way the ministers, the way the judges, the way the local governors, the, the mayors, and then the governors of the provinces, all these apparatus, all these state apparatus became corrupted, became inefficient, I should say, became inefficient. And with the modernity brought new changes and new technologies and even a new way to, to use money, to produce money. And she refused all that. That became the, the that sealed the faith of the emperor's dynasty. And she was the last one who faced this, refused to see the changes. And when the changes were there, because her people was dying on famine when the state was broke, bankrupt, and she refused to see that, finally she said, okay, we might as well open the doors to foreigners. We might as well do some reforms. But it was too late. So I will say it was both. She was part of the problem. And she was part of the solution. And by being part of the solution, it was the end of the emperor's era. These two women are so interesting and powerful. And I think their failures teach us a lot about historiography. They teach us a lot about women and how they can gain and keep and maintain and um, and, and even lose power. Um, and I'm just so grateful to have Connie here and to teach us a little bit about this. This has been an incredible experience. I feel like I've gained a lot of depth for my classes that I can now bring about these two women. Um, and I think this is, you know, just because there were only two, I think this is one of those moments in, in a history class where we have to say, okay, there were two. And the, the, difficulty in becoming an empress versus becoming an emperor is something that needs to be acknowledged and therefore almost demands that they be taught because they are so so unique and and that um, challenge for them is, is so much harder. So I'm so grateful to you for giving me that depth so that I can really expand on on these two women. And um, is there anything else that you want to add before we sign off here? Yes, I want to recommend the audience to two books that I use for this account in this podcast. The one is the book by Jonathan Clements, Way to Become a Living God. You can buy it on, on Amazon. And the other is uh, the one I am sure you're going to love. You're going to love if you have time, uh, because I know you're very busy. But I want to recommend the book of Yung Shang, the concubine who launched modern China, Empress Dowager Cixi. That's from 2013. And it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. It is set as a book, but also as a novel. Both, both books are, are just engaging. You want to know what's next. And, uh, in the case of Sishi, it's so recent, if you will, in history, that is more perhaps realistic, is less mythological than Wu, but uh, it's fascinating the way she made her way up from a lowest class concubine to be a regent who ruled for 47 years, being a woman and ruling 47 years. 
which was her asset and her downfall, as we discussed. Yeah. So beautiful history and big lessons to learn there, right? Mm-hmm. It takes brains and beauty. <laughs> the two are lethal combination, as <laughs> Wu and Tishi show us. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, you're amazing. Thank you, Bonnie. <laughs> they are amazing. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.